This year at WrestleMania, the crowd was unbelievable. The moment I got in the ring with The Rock, I felt Hulkamania, brother. He won the match. I won my fans back. But The Rock became a purebred Hulkamaniac. I always wished I could prove what I had against the immortal Hulk Hogan. I'm honored to get in the ring with him, but I'm also a little bit sad because I've got to take a bit of my childhood and I've got to destroy it. Tonight at Backlash has now become the most important night of my life. The undisputed WWF Championship represents everything that I've worked. The undisputed WWF Championship represents the fact that Hulkamania wasn't a dream. In this business, there is only one goal, and that is to be the best. I will stop at nothing to make sure that I remain the undisputed World Wrestling Federation champion. The undisputed WWF Heavyweight Championship shows that Hulk Hogan is the man that is the best at his game, past, future, or present. You talk about the icon and all the things that come along with it. That was then. This is now. I need that belt to etch my legacy in stone. Yes, I am the greatest. Yes, I am the Babe Ruth of the WWE. Right now, right here, tonight, there is nobody bigger. There is nobody higher than Triple H. I need that belt more than life itself at this point. Getting to WrestleMania and proving that I could be everything that I once was the greatest thing ever. I will not let that be for nothing. And now, the World Wrestling Federation presents Backlash. I'll tell you what, boys. You know what we could do? We could uh, set up an alternative Hall of Fame, and it'll just be full of basically us three, and Tajiri, and Val Venus, obviously, and Mark Henry. And Mike Rotunda. Yeah, Mike Rotunda. Viscera. Do you know what we should do this, lads? We should do our own Hall of Fame. Like old man just said, it should be IRS should be the first person. We'll do it once a decade. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Welcome once more to the Random Wrestling Review. I'm Ben Spindler and today we are going to be looking at WWE Backlash 2002, a show from a period of time that was in limbo between attitude and ruthless aggression in WWE's fictionalised era timeline, and one that will no doubt have plenty to say about. On the pod today, I am joined by none other than the Val Venus standing, forever old manning, Sam Carey. Sam, how are you? Oh, that's only Val Venus. Have a major day, just goes by saying Val Venus. Yeah, the listeners better strap themselves in because we've started hot with um, the mention of Alvinus and a lovely rhyming couplet as well. So thank you very much, Tinky. Excited to be here. Good stuff, and it gets better than that because we also have the cement dumping, city to city jumping, Tom Smith himself. Tom, how are you? Lovely stuff. Cement dumping. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Do you not remember that from a couple of weeks ago, your uh, cement dump Smith, when he called you for uh, about five seconds? No, I don't remember that, but I'll I'll look forward to... (laughs) Find, trying trolling back through the archives to find that, to see if it made the final edit of an episode. Um, I just thought I'd uh, break the fourth wall a little bit for the listeners. So last night, old man and I had a couple of beers, ended up dancing to Val Venus's theme song in a mixed <laughs> living room. Yeah. <laughs> Socially distanced, and not, not slow dancing, I like to add, but just having a little boogie. It would have been better if it had been slow dancing. It's romantic. <laughs> <laughs> what? 
Yeah, the the one disappointment with it was obviously that uh, our friend who we were around, Berkey's, uh, he didn't supply any towels, so we couldn't oh. go full, couldn't full go penis. full, yeah, boxer shorts, towel over, whip it off. He wants to sort his life out without the towels. Yeah. He does. What kind of party doesn't supply towels so that you can do Val Venus impressions to them? It was it wasn't a party. No, no. <laughs> you can have a party of two when you've got Val Venus's theme tune going on. That's true. That's very true. Well, and or it could be a party of one, as many times I've had. Just dancing <laughs> around me living room, towel on, shirt off. For a minute there, I thought we were getting into masturbation territory, but we are yeah. away from it quickly. Uh, uh, no, no. The big Valvowski, he wouldn't get me uh, girdles going, I don't think, to be honest. With, with, with respect, he's a bit too much bottom bollock, not enough top bollock. <laughs> what, does, what does that mean? <laughs> he's got a pair of bollocks, not a pair of tits. Oh, oh <laughs> top bollocks, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm glad we've got all that out of our system. And um, before we get into Backlash 2002, some obligatory plugs as we have some social media channels that you can catch us on RWR Pod UK on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Tom can be found at The Real Tom Smith and myself at Tink Holloway. Old Man is not on social media, which makes him the smartest one of us all. Finally, the smartest one out of us three. Fucking t- about time. It's kind of like being the tallest dwarf, though, isn't it, old man? Come on. That's very offensive, given that I am the shortest in the group. I find that very... Yeah. I don't think you are. Are you the shortest? you shorter than me? Uh, I'm five foot seven and about okay. one eighth. Uh, and one eighth. You've measured yeah. that one eighth. You're just trying to make sure yeah, you're yeah. as tall as you possibly can be. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, let's just start talking about Backlash 2002. And first of all, your expectations for what you thought you might be about to see before you watched it. Old man, let's start with you. This is obviously coming off the back of WrestleMania 18, which isn't very good at all. It's obviously got the match, Jericho and Triple H. And then there's like there's some sub-main event with the Rock and Hook and that is all right. It's a weird time because I was kind of in and out at this point with wrestling in general. I can remember watching WrestleMania 18 and I, I've ne- not watched this show. And so my introduction was the opening video package which focuses on Triple H and Hogan. And I'll be honest, unlike Val Venus's music in a socially distanced gathering, it didn't get the blood pumping. I equate it to a, if you've ever caught a spider under a glass and then you have that moment where you need to try and like get some paper or some card underneath and then <laughs> yeah. get it outside. Like You approach it a little tentatively, but you know it'll probably be okay. But there's that fear that it's going to all go wrong and a spider's going to bite you and you're going to die. That was kind of that was kind of how I approached this pay-per-view, knowing that Triple H and Hogan was the main event. That's a dramatic response to yeah. knowing the main event of a paper wrestling pay-per-view. Yeah, that was like an Eric Cantona-esque analogy yeah. that you used then. <laughs> Talk about seagulls and stuff next. One thing that's just dawned on me, do you reckon this main event is the match with the most H's of all time in a wrestling match <laughs> five h's that's pretty impressive yeah i mean it's got to be the it's got to be the highest percentage and the highest number at the same time like there'll probably be a tag team match somewhere which will improve upon it but in terms of there's a hundred percent initials of h's here incredible isn't it i mean why they why they didn't market the <laughs> pay-per-view around that i've got no idea <laughs> So Tom, did, did that did that factor into your expectations for the show? Um, so again, I, I think 
I stopped watching wrestling after WrestleMania 18 for a long period of time. So I had never seen this this pay-per-view either. I would say I had no expectations. I didn't know any of the matches on it until they happened or until they were announced in the context of the pay-per-view. But I did obviously know because of the opening video package that Hulk Hogan versus Triple H was going to be the main event. And I thought that match is going to be a bit slow plodding and rubbish. <laughs> and, and I will, without wanting to give too many spoilers away, my expectations were met. <laughs> so I, I don't know if that's a good thing. At first, I thought I've definitely seen this because I remembered what the main event was. I knew what the main event was, and I knew Hogan was going to face Triple H in the main event for the WWE Championship. Um, and I was convinced I'd watched it beforehand because I kind of my parents got Sky just before WrestleMania 15, so 1999. And I watched, I th- I'm pretty certain I watched every pay-per-view I was able to then from that point onwards until SummerSlam 2002, which is when, which has been the pay-per-view before I went to university and I no longer had a TV, let alone Sky. So I was convinced I watched it, but then I realized that this was one of the few shows, one of the few pay-per-views of the time that was actually only on Sky Box Office because Jim Ross says it during the show. Um, and so I realized I hadn't actually I probably hadn't seen it on the night or the night or the day after, as I would have done for most of the shows. And the reason it was on Sky Box Office is that it was one of the four shows that Channel 4 had had the previous two years when they had that brief period where they were actually having this is also all UK te- television talk as well, yeah. which isn't going to be any good for anyone listening in America. But Channel 4 had four pay views, including the Rumble 2000, which was the first one they showed. And it was too violent and too explicit for Channel 4's tastes that that pretty much soured them on the relationship with Sky, with WWE from then, then on. And when those four pay-per-views, I think it was Royal Rumble, Backlash, Vengeance maybe, and one other maybe Armageddon, were switched from Channel 4 to Sky, they became pay-per-view shows for the first time ever. They were just previously available on Sky Sports and now they were suddenly on Sky Box Office. So I don't think I did see it at the time. But I did know what happened in terms of the main event, and that did not fill me with super excitement for the show, if I'm honest, when I thought, oh, Hogan versus Triple H at a time when I think Triple H was going through a little bit of uh, uh, a nadir in his, his career as well. Wasn't wasn't really looking forward to it. Quite rich, isn't it? The, uh, Channel 4 I thought it was too distasteful, considering some of the absolute muck they put out. There. Yeah. And the fact, the fact that this is this is the, this is the TV company that airs Hollyoaks. <laughs> In fairness, it had the ultra violence, didn't it, of Triple H and, and Cactus Jack, and it had the May Young uh, exposing herself. Oh yeah, she got a tits out, didn't she? <laughs> so the, on, the, those were the reasons why Channel Four were put off of WWE instantly. But it so, was, I mean, it's not like it was on at like four in the afternoon. <laughs> that's true. That's very you know, true. I'm sure they've probably shown much more violent films. That yeah, that. I think Channel Four. Do you know what? I got a lot of time for Channel Four. Admire the fact that when uh, Prince Philip died, they carried on with their programming, unlike those cowards, the BBC. And uh, and it was like a they did a little bit, and then it was straight back on to come dine with me. And that's what we like. But they they've soured themselves on me with this attitude towards WWE. They're absolute slugs, and I won't have another word said about it. Well, uh, well, I'm going to say another word about it. You're a slug as well. <laughs> In defense of them, they also had Sunday Night Heat on Channel 4. That was part of this deal. And that was shown at 4 o'clock on a, or 5 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. And I think that their, their thinking was, 
this was a way of attracting people in children in basically during the afternoon on a weekend getting and then getting them to watch the sunday night show that they would have recorded no doubt obviously they wouldn't have stayed up because it would have been way past their bedtime here in the uk and yeah and i think that was probably their their thought is that we've kind of connected the two and that's not really it's not really right well they well, should have known so their fucking audience they not do any market research on that's what's, true. what's happening in WWE that's true. idiots very true. What, what was tough about the obviously the Channel Four thing was that they had a delay of an hour, didn't they? So they could put their ad, ad breaks in. I think they did like a twenty-minute delay when they first started, but then again, after that first rumble, they then made it an hour delay because yeah, because tits. They're, um, they're called top bollocks. <laughs> so we we get into the show then. We start with an opening video package where um they as you said they hyped up to Triple H versus Hulk Hogan during the little video package. Hogan says the rock is a purebred Hulkamaniac, which I'm not sure what that means. I'm a little bit worried about what that means, to be honest, given <laughs> Hogan's later racial comments. Um, what a purebred anything is, I'm a bit worried about. What's mm. purebred? Apart from a good sturdy loaf. <laughs> Maybe that's what he's saying. Maybe he's saying the rock is a lovely loaf of bread. What loaf of bread would the rock be? Uh, I don't know. It'd have to be something very, very kind of tasty, wouldn't it? It can't be just your plain. <laughs> no, it'd be like a, a nice sourdough. Oh, yeah. Oh, lovely sourdough. Yeah. Rocky, Rocky, Rocky. <laughs> sourdough, sourdough, sourdough. <laughs> if we ever find ourselves in a situation where in a, when we're in a crowd at a wrestling event again and the rock happens to be there, we're going to get a sourdough chant going. Yeah. Wow, the odds of that happening is so slender. It's that's that's why that's why I can say it because I know it's never going to happen. Because <laughs> you went to that will... eighty thousand people. Sour though. Sour though. The rock don't know what's going on. I tell you what, now wrestling shows are opening back up again. If anyone wants to get a sourdough chant on the go at any wrestling show anywhere in the world, please do so and let us know about it. That would be lovely. Yeah, and then tag us on the RWR and pay us our royalties. Yes. I don't, I don't think they're making any money from that chant, in fairness. So the first match of the night is Tajiri versus Billy Kidman for Kidman's Cruiserweight title. Tajiri is accompanied by Tori Wilson, who is dressed up as a geisha um, and seems to be being controlled in terms of her behaviour by Tajiri. So the match itself goes nine minutes and sees Tajiri win after Kidman goes for a powerbomb but Tajiri sprays him in the face with his red mist <laughs> not green mist on this occasion red mist to win the title old man's finding something very funny what, what's going on here uh, here was the fact so Kidman gets Tajiri up for a powerbomb doesn't he and then he sprays the mist and it was just it was the fact that I wasn't sure whether you were going to say that he sprays him with the mist. It was just he sprays him in the face. And Vix's groin was in Kidman's face. I was thinking that he'd fucking jizzed all over his face or something. And then Kidman and they, ah, and the eyes all stuck together. Horrible. I think it's going to be a long day today. <laughs> so, yeah, what do we think of this? Tom, let's start with you. What did you think? Um, I thought the match in itself was really fun and fine, but going into that spot at the end with the... Uh, it's not even a mist, is it? It's not even mist. It's just a, a downpour of red liquid. And the volume of liquid that comes out, there's so much. It, he just spits in his face. And it, it's not just like a normal, like you say, a green mist. It's like a waterfall opens and goes straight in the face. One thing that I did really like about that, though, is that the, the kind of... It, it falls through, because he's in a powerbomb position. And Billy Kimmel falls onto his back, so obviously, like, his knees are, like, over Billy Kimmel's shoulders. But he, uh, he's he got, like, a little bit of, like, a cloth on the front of his um, tights, has Tajiri, and he covers the blood so the referee can't see it. Mm. It was a really, really nice touch. I was like, that's, re- that's really cool. So the referee, and, like, mm. he's got red stuff all over his face. I really like Tajiri. I've always, I've always quite liked it. I think, in fact, to be honest, I think it was 
your enthusiasm of Tajiri back in the day that kind of made me realise how good he was. Yeah. Um, there's a bit of an annoying, like we, I think it's becoming a bit of a current, a, an occurring theme throughout pay-per-views that we're watching with uh, Jerry Lawler on commentary, that he is actually intolerable mm. all the time. You know what I mean? All the <laughs> yeah. time. He's so Correct. annoying. He's yeah. just so irritating. Again, he's just constant. All he's talking about through the entire match is Tori Wilson being in, yeah. being covered up effectively, and it gets so tiresome and so boring so quickly. But they don't really kind of explain what's going on. I've seen you said that she's obviously under some kind of. Well, I guess the insinuation is that she's in something somewhat of an abusive relationship with yeah. Tajiri. But it's just happening. It's just there. There's no. There doesn't seem to be any point in it other than. Just say something to make the king be an ass on commentary, and that's well, about I, it. I think I think the idea is it's just an ongoing storyline that's not yet ready to be completed. So I don't. That's why you don't. They don't address it too much because they're not looking to make a big deal of it. It's not a plot point. This particular match is not a plot point in that story. No, uh, and I don't know if there was a particular plot point in the match. It was just a nice little opener, which was quite fun. I haven't really got anything to say about Billy Kidman. The only thing I think I know about Billy Kidman is that he used to do a shooting star press, didn't he? He misses a shooting star press during the match, which yes, is how, yeah. you, how you would know that he did the shooting star press. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, that that that's it really. That's all I got in the match. It was fine. It did it did it did it, it served the purpose, which was to open the card, and it was it was quite a nice little match. And as I said, I very much enjoyed the spot at the end, especially the hiding of the blood covered face. I thoroughly enjoyed this. I would say I didn't thoroughly enjoy this. I bloody loved it. As with the spider analogy, I kind of know what's coming. And I was like, I want more of this. I want more of this, please, to kind of delay the onset of fear of watching five H's roll around for what will probably be about eight hours. A uh, little Billy Kidman fact for you. He was in a relationship with Tori Wilson this time and they got married the following year. Sadly divorced four years later. But yeah, so I was like Billy Kidman. I thought he was, I don't know what happened, really. He seemed to come in, have a series of really good matches with pretty much anyone. Yeah, and then he just stopped. I don't know whether he was injured. I don't know whether Tinky or Tommy know why. But watching this, I was like, he's just really, really good. There's some lovely little spots. There's, like, there's a couple of great false finishes uh, towards the end. Um, I, I think it's Billy Kidman does this like weird like somersault leg drop thing off the top rope which looks incredible which looked incredibly painful to take and something i noticed in the match as well is that everything looked like it really hurt but you could tell that they were looking after each other very good both over as well both great and there was um to tom's point about the um the kind of weird tory wilson thing there's the weird interview at the end with uh to Jerry, which, to be honest, it came across a little bit racist. Yeah, I don't know what they were trying to accomplish. No. Um, so, as you say, Michael Cole tries to get an interview with Tajiri after the match and, and Tajiri just speaks in Japanese and then walks off. The look of disgust on Michael Cole's face when Tajiri's talking to him in Japanese as well. And he's, he's just like, ugh, foreign. Yeah, it's, so, it's, just, it's absolute disgust on his face. What about you, Tinky? Yeah, I thought it was a really good match. And I want to kind of straight away shout out to who I thought was the MVP of the show on this, which is the absolutely fantastic crowd. They were great during the show Mm -hmm. uh, and they elevated everything. 
on it everything on it was better because of the crowd they were into it they booed the heels they cheered the faces they made loads of noise they got into everything on the show and so yeah i just wanted to instantly say well done to them because i don't think kidman less so to jerry but i don't think kidman was that over during this period but they made him look like he was super over Mm. during this match and yeah i I don't know a lot about what happened to kidman so i I seem to remember at one point him he got released and and i seem to remember some kind of shoot interview afterwards where he said something to the effect of he got into an argument with somebody in management about the fact that at one point they used to fly people when they went to international shows they used to fly people first class and they stopped doing it and kidman got into an argument about someone so about that with someone and then was released he looked like a real kind of um, potential star when he first turned up in WCW as a, as a cruiserweight. And he did look like he was going places. But I think, first of all, obviously WCW collapsed. And it was after he kind of first emerged when WCW went into their spiral of terrible television for about two years. Um, and then, of course, he turned up in WWE as part of the WCW-ECW alliance, which was probably not, not the best place to be introduced to the WWE audience because there were lots and lots of wrestlers all at the same time being introduced. And, and then after that, yeah, he kind of just made up part of the Cruiserweight division for most of his time in WWE for about four years after being released, uh, before being released, I should say. Why is he complaining about not getting to travel in first class anymore? He's only little. He doesn't need loads of space. <laughs> Sit in economy with the rest of us, you prick. You're entitled <laughs> bellend. There we go. I don't know if flying first class should be an absolute employment right for, for anybody. No. But saying that, I guess if they had previously done that and they were now not doing it, I don't know. Who knows? Uh, obviously, Kidman is a producer at WWE. I think he's been there maybe 10 or 12 years. Yeah, he was interestingly one of the few that were furloughed during um, COVID-19. He's back. Yeah, do you reckon that was so that they could stop having to pay for bloody first-class air travel for him? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so uh, the other thing I really liked about this match is that Tajiri's got his kind of spots the WWE style is you come along, you do your spots, you do your three or four signature spots that you do in every match, and then you get out. That's what the television matches are anyway. And Tajiri's two or three spots were the tarantula, the handstand kind of back elbow thing against mm. the ropes. Um, one of, and, and, you know, is, is, is green mist or is red mist in this case. And they used all of them here, but they did it in kind of interesting ways. All, all, all three of those things, they were usually what happens is in Tajiri's matches, he just comes out, does those three, and then the match ends. That's pretty much it but here they use each of those spots in kind of a different way or with a little bit of a twist as you said with the pinfall in particular was it sort of a different way of doing it usually he'd do that in the first five seconds of a match because he's got to store something in his mouth in order to do but they did it towards the end and the tarantula spot here was really cool as well i think kibben kind of got out of it first of all and then they did some kind of wrestling chain wrestling kind of thing to get him back into the tarantula which is really cool so yeah uh, I, I really liked it. Really good start to the show. Really hot crowd. Great stuff to start. One last note on Tajiri. I kind of forgot this. He is an amazing heel. His, like he does, um, we've talked about this. Um, uh, Tommy mentioned Sami Zayn. I think it was the 2021 Rumble for the for the listeners, if they want to go back and have a little bit of that. And there he is. He does the same spots, but he just does little things differently and just gets a completely different reaction from people. And his, his facials are great as well. And a bloody lovely kick as well. Yeah. It's a lovely kick. Hold that to Jerry. Yeah. Good lad. Why ain't he in the Hall of Fame, Tinky? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's the Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so then we get backstage the APA reuniting after being split by the uh, draft extension. And they talk about something the NWO did to the APA's office on Raw, which I assume happened after oh. the APA office was effectively Terrible. closed because Farouk and Bradshaw were being split up. Um, and this kind of feeds into a lot of different things during the show, because this is not I don't believe or I might be wrong, but I didn't believe that this was a Raw exclusive pay-per-view. But they were soon to start having Raw and SmackDown exclusive pay-per-views. But the reason this one wasn't was because basically they'd only just had the draft and they were completing or finishing off the final feuds and storylines from the sort of pre-draft era. That leads into Scott uh, Bradshaw's match with Scott Hall from the NWO, a classic. I'm sure you'll both agree. Uh, this one went five and a half minutes and ended with uh, some shenanigans going on. So first of all, we had Bradshaw hitting the clothesline from hell, but then X-Pac put in Hall's feet on the rope. Uh, Farouk then chased X-Pac around the ring, which was distracting Bradshaw. And during that period, Farouk grabbed X-Pac into a sort of kind of cuddle position and rammed him into the uh into the ring pole uh and this distraction allowed scott hall to low blow bradshaw and get the pin on him top thoughts so i enjoyed this match a match between scott hall and bradshaw from 2002 a lot more than i had any right to <laughs> i as soon as as soon as it so it starts off loving x-pac wearing kane's mask as he accompanies scott hall down to the ring just a nice lovely little touch Obviously, in the midst of some kind of feud, again, because we've already discussed feuds that they had in 2000. One of the great underrated long-time feuds, I think, <laughs> we'll, I think we'll all agree, is Kane versus X-Pac. Bradshaw, I don't know what it is about this era of Bradshaw. There's definitely, I definitely didn't, didn't ever notice it in like the JBL era of Bradshaw. Maybe he lost a bit of weight, perhaps. He was always walking like he shit himself. He watched, watched Bradshaw walk down to the ring. Big it looks like he's just done one in his pants. <laughs> and it's uh, it's really it's really weird. But the bit when it already it already starts, you know, X Pac already starts mucking about outside the ring as he's prone to do, and then Farouk comes down to join them, and the pop for Farouk coming down. And it was at this point as well where I realised how much I really appreciated the swingy, stabby things mm-hmm. in the in the backlash set. How much I how much I enjoyed that. Bradshaw beats the fucking piss out of Scott Hall in this match. <laughs> you can tell he's obviously like. One of these, like, at the time, there you always heard stories about there being, like, a couple of, like, the older WWE guys who were a bit protective of it and didn't like it when people came in. I get the idea that may have been Bradshaw. And he just fucking slaps the shit out of um, Scott Hall about this match. <laughs> um, Scott Hall's not looking the best, looking in his best no. way at the moment. I think he's safe to say he may have had a liquid lunch. And it, he comes down to the ring looking a little bit worse for it. But he can still go, though, to some extent, in the ring. Like, he, he wasn't as... As much of an as much of an embarrassment as I thought you would be, um, but overall I actually really enjoyed this match and I quite liked the shenanigans at the end and, and the stupidity of it all. Yeah, and it was just really fun. I I, I had a lovely lovely. It's not it's not very long, mercifully short. Mm. And uh, and it, it we've spoken about it before, like when we spoke about Mark Henry versus Viscera. You know what I mean? That this match actually exceeded my expectations. This match is no. Mark Henry Viscera, mate. This match yeah. is nowhere near. I mean, look, I, I don't disagree with you. I, I didn't 
you know, it wasn't amazing or anything, but it was fine. Five minutes long. You're not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna complain too much about a five minute match, even when it is a little bit ugly, even when Hall does look in terrible condition, as you said, and even when Bradshaw, I actually thought Bradshaw, you're right, he does beat Scott Hall up, but I felt like he went a bit lighter on Hall than he normally would. If you watch Bradshaw this time, he does it to everyone. He's stiffing everybody. I think ultimately, especially at this time in his life, he's someone who thought he was much harder than he actually was. Um, and like to like to show that by beating people up in the ring when they are letting him do it. Like, I don't know how that makes you. Um, that's, a, that's a proper strong. man, that is. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think it's one of the th- reasons why I've always disliked him, especially around this time, because it just that seemed to be his function was I'm just going to beat people up. Maybe to just cover up for the fact that I'm not actually very good in the ring. And he also had this kind of very one dimensional character at the time. So, yeah, I, I thought he went quite quite light on Hall in comparison to what he would, but he still does, as you right, you rightly say, beat him up. The clothesline from hell is one of those, like, just it looks, te- it looks terrible to take every time. Yeah, it was it was fun enough. Old man. I think you, you've done an excellent job covering it. I agree with pretty much everything that Tommy said. To me. I just enjoy it. One thing I did notice about Bradshaw, I don't know when it is, whether it's 2003 or 2004 when he becomes JBL. And uh, he, um, we've talked a lot about punches on this. And I think one of the reasons, <clears throat> one of the only reasons, possibly, that Bradshaw actually manages to get over is because his, his punches are dreadful, mm. but he hits people. <laughs> and that's the, like, without actually hitting them, they would look dreadful. Because they kind of like, I get the feeling that, like, if he was, if it was a worked punch, it would look like someone just flapping a fish in someone's face. Because his arms loose, is not stiff. He kind of, as they tend to, like he hits kind of with like a slightly opened fist. I, I don't think anybody's a big Bradshaw mark. Singles Bradshaw is not for me. Well, his, his but, name was his name was John Bradshaw, not Bradshaw Mark, old man. Oh yes, yeah, sorry. Ooh. I always get those two confused. It's bloody difficult. Poor old Bradshaw Mark. That's the uh, cleaner that I have. <laughs> <laughs> with his vacuum from hell. <laughs> Does he does he put your washing on the clothesline from hell? <laughs> That's fucking good. That's good shit. Well done. You've, you're right, old man. You've made you made a very similar point to me, which is that he can't actually work, and so he has to beat people up to make anything look good. Yeah. I'm also <laughs> I've not thought about this that Tommy said, but he does walk like he shit himself, <laughs> and he's also got an enormous ass. Like it's fucking massive. JBL, more like JBXL. <laughs> maybe he, maybe he was the big booty daddy or whatever <laughs> Scott Stein used to call himself. <laughs> that was what he was referring to. That's <laughs> what he's referring to, Bradshaw. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, was laughing so much then that he spoke and no noise came out. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Go on, Bradshaw. So we get after this backstage, Vince McMahon busting into Ric Flair's office and telling him that he's beginning to like his style. He says that employees are just a bunch of ungrateful people who are distrustful of them. He says he doesn't understand why he's made himself ref in the match coming up between Austin and The Undertaker. Um, And Flair says he'll never be like Vince McMahon. What an odd promo. I'm beginning to like you, but I don't know what you've done or why you've done anything. But I'm beginning to like you. Yeah, now this is where I realise that my kind of knowledge of this period is a little bit sketchy because I'm, I'm certain, as I said, I'm certain I've watched all the pay-per-views that I could have done at the time. But I'm pretty certain that this is also where Ric Flair starts to become 
a bit like Vince McMahon, which I think is partially why this promo is there to sort of say that maybe Ric Flair is becoming the replacement for Vince McMahon in, for example, Steve Austin's life, which we'll obviously get to later on. But yeah, just uh, you're right. It was a bit of a strange one. This not really sure what it was about. It's clearly how Vince genuinely feels about his employees as well. Yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's that ongoing kind of where does Mr. McMahon end and where does Vince McMahon start? And I don't think that they're that much different, to be honest. No. There, there's a bit, and I can't remember if it's, it might be in the build-up to the Triple H match, where he's like, I know what the fans want. They think they know what they want, but I know better. And you're like, fuck me if there's ever been a truer word said on <laughs> WWE television than I haven't heard it. Indeed. The next match sees Jazz against Trish Stratus for the WWF Women's Championship. Lasts four and a half minutes and ends when Jazz manages to lock Trish in an STF and Trish taps. Before the match, of course, um, we should say that um, Molly Holly comes out to the ring and cheap shots Stratus and beats her up, throws her into the steel steps, which gives Jazz an advantage early on. Oh, man, your thoughts on this one? This is going to be a a running theme. A running theme with any jazz match. Enjoyed it. Enjoyed it a lot. Let's get the shit out of the way. Lawler, a disgraceful performance on commentary again. Again compares uh, jazz to Mike Tyson. So we covered the WrestleMania 19, which was obviously the following year. So that was obviously a running theme. Just going to pick you up on that because it's Jim Ross who compares her to Tyson in this particular match. Does he? But the difference is he's not saying he, she looks like him. She's saying ah. he's got an attitude like Tyson, which I think is perfectly acceptable. Why did you neck it, old man? <laughs> no, you know what? No, I'm doubling down. Lawler's a cunt. I'm having <laughs> That's fine. I've no, I'm not disputing yeah. that part. <laughs> So this is just good. Jazz is really good. Trish is obviously uh, quite new in terms of like having these matches and she puts a heck of a bloody shift in. Two hours puts a shift as well. Charles Robinson. Because there's just this nice little bit that he picked up where there's a sit-down powerbomb that Jazz gives to Stratus, which looks bloody awful. And uh, Charles Robinson just takes a few seconds to get into position to allow it to be believable that uh, Trish would kick out and like jazz jazz is just really good because like she like refuses to release the hold at the end just for a few seconds she just looks double-eyed and she made because trish like hangs with her through the match having had the mini beatdown from molly it makes trish look really tough as well and uh, when i was uh thinking about toughness you reckon oh Oh, jazz toughened everyone up in that female locker room and made him a bit work a bit more realistic I think she was a valuable addition to the women's roster. And I think she brought some, yeah, some almost like a feel, a legit feel to some of them. I don't necessarily think they weren't tough, but I just think that presentation wise, she maybe brought that toughness, which perhaps is something WWE weren't allowing the other women to do during this period. So, yeah, I do think in that respect, just in terms of in front of the cameras, she enabled them all to look tougher because WWE allowed her to look tough. Yeah, it's 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 she's very good. Her STF looks agony, doesn't it? It looks yeah. absolutely agonizing. I um I would not like to be in that hold. It's far far cry from the older Cena cuddle, cuddling <laughs> cuddling bend the leg. But yeah, I, I can't really I haven't really got much else to add. It was a good it was a really good match. I, I really enjoyed it. The um 
the and you guys are right like Trish works so hard as well to to keep up and despite the fact that she's still quite new to this role and yeah it was just it was just really good yeah good stuff um I I thought it was fine I think four minutes you're only going to get a certain amount out of out of anybody during this um when you give them four minutes but this was a period definitely when they were trying to slowly improve Trish in the skills that she had in the ring she still wasn't close to being where she would end up being and we watched obviously wrestlemania 19 a few weeks back and we saw her match where she is definitely better than she was here but i commented during that match that she was still showing some signs of being relatively green still still learning her craft and what they did at this period during this period of time is they pretty much put trish out every single pay-per-view and had her have a match which lasted about three or four minutes and they just gave her um, matches against people like Jacqueline and Jazz just to give her somebody who had that experience to lead her through these sort of shorter matches that would slowly improve her overall ability in the ring and I think obviously the end result showed that it worked really well because they did a really good job in, in, and Trish ended up as I say really improving to a really great degree and uh, yeah I think they did a really good job but for, as, as for this match it was fine it was four minutes um, they did. They certainly didn't embarrass themselves at all during this one. The thing is, with these short matches, and we've mentioned it already, because of that Mark Henry and Viscera match was so bloody good for that short period, it, it's made me look at these shorter matches quite differently, I think, because I not really noticed how bad a short match can be, like how crap they really can be. So I really appreciate these little gems that we uh, that we uncover every now and then. I think what it does mainly is it kind of the way I've come to appreciate them is just these sort of breathers in the middle of shows, which are mm. long. And I think sometimes if you strategically place them in the right positions, they can absolutely um, add to the overall quality of a show because they can just bring you down or they can just or they could just exist and you don't have to pay any attention because you know it's not going to be that important so i think um i think they show their value and when they're this tight it's more than appreciated mm. then we get uh, a hype video package oh before we get to the video package sorry we have some guy interview jazz i don't know who the guy is anyone know who this is no, no i actually had a note to, to ask you boys i was like who's the interviewer just no some idea. dude yeah, no idea. Um, I if you go on the backlash backlash page on Wikipedia, he's not even listed in the backstage interviewers. Um, they've got Michael Cole, we've got Jonathan Coachman, not this guy. Don't know who he is. No idea. That's sad. Dad doesn't say anything to him either. So so far, these ringside <laughs> interviews that both Michael Cole and this unknown guy have composed have been over two in terms of their usefulness to the viewer. Um, then we have the video package which hypes Brock Lesnar versus Jeff Hardy and includes a very creepy uh, bit of Paul Heyman work where he's backstage mm-hmm. in Lita's locker room playing with one of her thongs and kind of being very suggestive and just very creepy in general. I want to give you guys a chance to comment on this if you want to i fucking hated it and it it's horrible it's horrible it's so fucking cheap and just so unnecessary to get to the match i don't uh just disgusting just really 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 unnecessary I'm going to talk in defense of it a little bit, not massive. Oh, that's cool, yeah, yeah. I agree that, I agree, it's unnecessary. You don't need to do this ever. Although in saying that, this is the only reason this match has any backstory is Brock Lesnar going into Lita's locker room. This is why I didn't like it, is because you don't need to do this. You can just have Brock Lesnar absolutely stove Matt Hardy's head in yeah, backstage. Yeah. From that perspective, 
it, it is the only reason the match hap- it exists anyway. But the other thing I was going to defend it slightly for was that there's no way in which Heyman is playing a babyface or is playing this for cheers. There's it is absolutely clear, 100% clear, that what Heyman is doing is heelish and is a bad thing to do. You know, it shouldn't be hard to portray this kind of thing as being a bad thing to do, but ultimately WWE have been bad at portraying these things mm. as necessarily being bad and sometimes you have as we've seen fans cheering for the person who does these kind of awful things in this case there's absolutely none of that they use somebody who is universally disliked by the WWE audience and they position quite clearly Lita Matt and Jeff as the as the heroes or the baby faces in this spot so it's not great I don't think you need to go there it is cheap but I don't think it was awful. I think it still, I think Lesnar's creep, uh, sorry, Heyman's creepiness is clear. And it's clear that he is being a creep and everyone thinks he's a creep. And that's the only way I can, there's the only defense I've got of it, really. I think there is the issue that Brock Lesnar is fucking amazing. And the fans, undoubtedly, because I know I would have, if I was in the order, I would have been fucking gagging to see Lesnar and I would have been excited and I probably would have cheered him as well. So I can I can understand why they went there, but I don't think they should have. No, fair enough. And thankfully, this yeah. crowd, being as good as they were, stayed on yeah. on uh, on script. They booed yeah. Heyman Lesnar throughout, and they cheered Hardy. And as, as we said, maybe with a less impressive um, crowd, we wouldn't have got the re- the response that they were supposed mm. to get. So that was good. And, and before the match backstage, uh, Paul Heyman psychs up. Brock Lesnar ahead of what he calls his first official match, which apparently this was his first match on television at the time. So then we have Brock Lesnar versus Jeff Hardy. Brock Lesnar comes out with different music than we uh, are it's used to. It's bloody having. awful, isn't it? Yeah, it's a proper, like, slow, mid- mid-paced metal yeah. uh, entrance, the, the like of which during the Attitude Era they loved to give wrestlers. Yeah. And this one's got some sort of shenanigans as well. So um, Hardy goes out and grabs a chair, but Lesnar ducks when Jeff Hardy swings for him and hits the F5. Heyman then tells Lesnar not to pin him, but hurt him. Um, Lesnar hits two, three power bombs in a row, um, and then the referee stops the match. Old man, thoughts on this one? You couldn't have a more perfect opponent at this time, I think, than Jeff Hardy. He sells his little heart out. He, he's very limber, so he throws his body around all over the place. He makes Lesnar, Lesnar, I think Lesnar could have probably had a match with a rocking chair and looked amazing given how it's booked. But he makes Lesnar look incredible in this. My one note is I found the referee stoppage to be very odd, purely because we've just had a match where one of the participants, Tristratus, has been attacked pre-match and then they started the match. Whereas Jeff Hardy takes an F5 and three power bombs, and they're like, oh no, we're done with this. Obviously, the insinuation is, is that Lesnar wouldn't have stopped. So they they were like, we need to save this guy's life. So it does make a bit of sense, but I was a bit like, ah, oh, it's a bit lazy. But also, every, everyone wins. Lesnar wins. Jeff Hardy's not going to be hurt by this. It's reminiscent of when WWE did a show in Japan and Lesnar fought Kofi Kingston, just as the New Day were massive. And I can remember having a conversation with uh, someone and they were like, oh, why are they like feeding Kofi to him? And it was like, because it ain't going to hurt. Like People won't remember it and they won't go, oh, uh, I'm not sure about that, Jeff Hardy, because he lost to uh, Brock Lesnar, didn't he? By referee stoppage. I don't really know about Jeff. So, yeah, just good all round. Lovely old job. Well done, Jeff. Tom. Uh, this is my favourite match on the on the card. 
Mm. I think that, kind of alluding to what Old Man said, booking a character uh, or a person who's beloved as Jeff Hardy against this absolute monster, Brock Lesnar, is amazing. Because even though you know there's no chance of Matt Hardy winning, when he does have his comebacks, there's still that element of hope to it and that really gets the fans in. The the other thing that made that I thought whilst I was watching this match was that it was like watching a horror film. There was like an undercurrent of dread to the entire match in the same way that like you do if you see like Jason Voorhees stalking a, a character in a horror film was what it felt like watching Brock Lesnar dismantle Jeff Hardy. I, I thought it was brilliant. I, I really enjoyed it because it is effectively just a glorified squash. But just when you think things are going to get really bad, there's a little flurry of offense from Jeff Hardy that gets everyone back involved and gives you just that glimmer of hope like, hello, he's going to bloody do it. And then you just get cut down again by Brock Lesnar's evilness in it and Paul Heyman's Paul Heyman's kind of guidance on the side of the ring. I thought this match was absolutely brilliant. To quote John Tarrood, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was uh, really good, really well executed, great way to introduce Brock Lesnar to the crowd properly in terms of his first official match. It was five and a half minutes in length. So it, it was never going to be, it can't, like it, you can't, you can only do so much for five and a half minutes. You can't turn it into a classic, but they absolutely executed brilliantly. It is a glorified squash or a glorified angle. One of the two. It's, I think it's just the execution that is really good. The one negative, Lita looked bored throughout, and I was quite disappointed by Lita's the way she she reacted to it. She didn't really sell the that dread mm. that you were talking about, Tom, which everybody else did, which was a real shame. She's on the outside, uh, not really selling at all that she's concerned for Jeff. I know that she was with Matt, but that's not the point. They're supposed to be team extreme after all. But yeah, overall, thought it was a really good a really good uh, introduction for Brock Lesnar, and look at the way they've brought him in here and they've presented him like they've had other guys that looked physically impressive before and they've never given them this kind of we're going to debut you on a pay-per-view and you're going to beat someone as popular as tom said as jeff hardy is um and we're going to have you dominate the match and beat that person and make you look really really impressive in the same in, in the same breath like they just don't they've just never really done that very often and it shows here how simple building someone can be. I think, though, what they knew they had in Brock Lesnar was someone very, very special. Even before he'd had his first match on WWE television, they knew this guy had something very, very special about him. And it's reflected here by the way they had um, him kind of come in and debut and beat Jeff Hardy in the way he did. And I think that the, the sort of referee stoppage of it all makes sense because they wanted to keep kind of they wanted to keep Brock Lesnar and Jeff Hardy paired up for another month or so before they got to the King of the Ring, I guess. And that was the way to sort of sell it, that Jeff Hardy hadn't been pinned or hadn't submitted. Mm-hmm. The referee had stopped it so they could they could extend that a little bit further and, and, and keep this feud going. Yeah, I really enjoyed it, too. There's also that element of Jeff Hardy where his work always looks a little bit clumsy. So when he's getting ragdolled around the ring by Brock Lesnar, it looks fucking real and, and agonisingly painful. Yeah. I realised as well when I was watching this, I was like, because obviously I've uh, got the spider analogy. At the moment, I'm walking up to that glass. I'm confident because we're, we're four matches in. Um, in my mind, we're four for four. And then you see what's coming up next. And I'm like, hello, this could this could be a little sleeper, this pay-per-view. 
I'm getting excited. I'm excited. So that next match is Kurt Angle versus Edge, and it, it lasts for 13 and a half minutes. The match ends when Angle kicks Edge in the head as Edge goes for a spear, and then Angle slams him for the pin. Thomas, thoughts on the match? So, I've got a couple of thoughts on this match. One, it's great. The actual in-ring work. Is there a better suplexer and suplexee than <laughs> Kurt Angle? Because no. I've never seen anybody take a suplex as good as he does. And I've never seen anyone throw a suplex as good as him. It's He's just wonderful. I'm not a big fan of this incarnation of Edge. No. I don't really like Babyface Edge. It's before he's found... It sounds a bit wanky, but it's before he's found himself. You know, Babyface Edge at this stage hasn't got much going for him, I think. He's still very good, and he's still very popular. And I think a lot of that is is down to, as you said earlier, Tinky, the crowd in this in this pay-per-view really get behind him as the Babyface. But it also made me think about our discussion we had around Kurt Angle in WrestleMania 19 and the hair of it all. Yeah. In that he is on his way to becoming that version of Kurt Angle, but there's still that kind of comedy, butt of the joke geekiness to him from the his presentation outside of the ring. Mm. But as soon as he is in the ring, he is all business. And it's such a good match. I really enjoyed it. And it, it made me just think, go on, Kurt Angle. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I love, love a bit of Kurt Angle. And, he, and he's, he, he's got to be up there. In, in that conversation with the best of all time. Because if you think about it, he doesn't have any weaknesses at all. I think of Austin being the greatest of all time. The only thing that Angle didn't have that Austin had is the numbers, is the is the you know the, the popularity maybe. Um, but it, oh, it's great. It's so much fun. And the other thing I meant to talk about when we were discussing again a match at WrestleMania 19. Have we ever really acknowledged how much Edge ripped off Rhino with the spear? The way <laughs> that he, he crouches down in the corner and mm. like does that. That's exactly what Rhino used to do, wasn't it? Well, it's also yeah. what Goldberg did as well. It's not really a it's not really a kind of new thing, was it? Yeah, and it's also it's always been a bit of a rubber spear. Edges. It's more like a running hug to the midriff. Yeah, I just think he's not he's not big enough, is he? That's the thing. No. Like the, the good ones are when yeah, you've got someone like a Rhino or. or or Goldberg when they're just so big they run through someone. Kill someone. <laughs> yeah. Edges just doesn't feel like it feels like a tidy move, which doesn't really have the impact you want it to have. Other than of course when he does it on Jeff Hardy off the top of a ladder from hanging yeah. from belts, of course. Which, <laughs> which which makes up for it all, quite frankly. Yeah. I mean you see there was a there's probably some impact in that move <laughs> um there's a bit at the end where jeff jerry lawler stands up and applauds angle's effort effort and it's kind of like i think he kind of plays it for comedy but i actually thought for a minute this is this is genuine jerry lawler's just genuinely impressed by the match they've just had and it did come across as him feeling really impressed by just the match and he kind of as he as I said he sort of stands up and applauds angle and says that was the most phenomenal performance i've ever seen and i i thought he was being genuine um old man I oh, this is phenomenal. This is we've we've talked about classics and I can think of no better match that you could wish for in 12, 13 minutes what they had. I've never been a fan of the you suck for Angle's entrance. Never really been a big fan of that, but that's a very minor, minor point. Good to sit here at Edge's Rob Zombie music which uh, I completely forgotten about. And also reminded me of a story of uh, when um, one of my sisters uh, worked in a shop in the centre of Bristol. She was friends with people who 
works at HMV and they had some signage for Hellbilly Deluxe, which was Rob Zombie's, I think it was his first or second solo album outside of White Zombie. And instead of Rob Zombie, it said Roy Zombie. (laughs) 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 Which I thought is tremendous. And every time I think of it, I just have a lovely little laugh to myself. But anyway, back to the business. Tommy's covered it beautifully. The The main thing that I got from this match is the selling of both of them is incredible. And it really, it's just so smooth and it, Everything looks real. Obviously, this plays to Angle as well. And Edge, to Tom's point as well, I think like this is, from memory, the little bits I was watching, this feels like the time when Edge is kind of just about kind of finding himself, as Tommy put it. And he's starting to look the real deal, I think. And I get the feeling that he probably could have had a decent match with everyone. But chuck him in there with Angle. It's phenomenal. And I, it's interesting you mentioned the uh, Lawler thing, Tinky, because I had a note about that. That's what I think as well. I think it's genuinely, he's just, nah, that was amazing. Well done, lads. I'm going to stand up and applaud this because it deserves it. Ah, tremendous. Well done, lads. Yeah, I, I thought, um, I've, I've gone back and forth on this about whether I think it's just a really good match or a great match. And I think the problem is, is that for me, the first half isn't that great. I think they rush things a little bit too much in the first half. And I think maybe if you give them another five minutes, this is a great match. But the first half of it i just thought was a little bit like nothing seemed to hang together it was perfectly fine it was all completely tidy and they they you know they didn't bore anyone but it was just i just didn't i wasn't i wasn't getting anything from it there was no story of materializing it was just move 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 and there was just nothing nothing holding it together the second half though especially the last two three minutes are exceptional like they really are good um and that and as i said the bit where Kurt Angle kicks Edge in the head as he's going for the spear. It's just such an obvious counter for someone throwing their head in towards you. And then and then Angle Slam, I just thought it was just a really great bit. And then that's why I thought it was genuine that Jerry Lawler was stood up because it was I just think at the end was just that good. The the last, mm. I said the last two or three minutes was genuinely this is great. This is absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I I kinda of know what you mean because it it does feel a little like that. I think because it builds to where they get to. That's why I love it so much, because it just um you kind of have the met not not messy because it's not messy, but you have the little messy bit where they're first having a scrap. And then when it settles down and they get going, it's like, oh, I felt as I said, I felt like they rushed the first five, six, seven minutes, but not in a kind of mate where it looked messy, just that they just seem to be doing move. Like when you were talking about selling, I was like, I was a bit disappointed with the selling. because I didn't feel like they'd sold enough in the first seven minutes. But I think it's because they were rushing because they had a lot they wanted to do. And they only had 13 minutes to do it. And I feel like, as I say, give them five minutes, more minutes and allow them to stretch out that early part of the match, build to something from a slower point, then it would have been something a bit more special. But it just if they just started too fast, in my in my view. If only there was a long, boring match, they could have shaved some time off at the end. So <laughs> uh, to, to give to give these lads. Absolutely. Well, on that note, we will take a quick break um, and we will come back in just a moment where we'll have the second half of the show. Well, well, well. What the hell do you want? Well, don't stand up for me, Rick. Easy. How about that NWO, huh? Pretty damn impressive. But I didn't come here to talk to you about NWO. I came here to tell you that uh, I think I'm beginning to like your style. And what I mean by that is that 
now that you're an owner, you're really beginning to know what it's like to be an owner. No matter what you do for your employees, it's never enough. They're just a bunch of ungrateful people. And not only that, they question everything that, that, that you do. They, they question your integrity, Rick. It's got to be getting to you. And they're very distrustful of you. So what I'm saying is, Rick, you're beginning to feel the heat as an owner. And now what have you done? You placed yourself between a rock and a hard spot. I don't get it. You've named yourself the, the guest referee in the Austin Undertaker number one contenders match. Now, either you're a fool or uh, maybe this is a, a stroke of brilliance on your part. I don't know yet. But um, I just want to let you know I'm beginning to relate to you. You can't relate to me. You haven't got a clue who I am. You never have known who I am and you never will. One thing for sure. I'll never be like Vince McMahon. Well, maybe not, but you could try. Never. Okay then, so we uh, will now go into the second half of the show, and it started kind of strangely because we had a weird cut on the WWE Network. I don't know if you guys saw this, but basically we had the end of the Kurt Angle Edge match, and then the camera sort of faded as it does, and usually you go to an advert or to a backstage promo or something, but then it faded back in straight into the ring again as if they'd cut something out. So I don't know what that is. If anyone knows, let us know, because it would be lovely to know what that was. I tell you what, I'd be really gutted if it was. I'd be gutted if it was the My Sacrifice video oh. uh, with the. Oh. That would be that would be devastating if that's what they cut out. But um, I don't think I've seen that on, on, anywhere on the network. No, yeah. I don't think I have. But then I don't know how much of it I've watched. So uh, of that period. So who knows? Maybe it is there. But who? Yeah, I don't know. It could have been that. Do you guys want to hear me sing a little bit of that? <laughs> I guess I could go for it. I mean, I, I imagine it's probably going to be worse for old man given the hangover, but. Tell you what, boys. One, I don't actually feel hungover, and two, Tom's got a lovely voice. You help me. I'm free. There you go. Of course, Tinky's crowning moment for Creed by Sacrifice is at a New Year's Eve party at a house that me and Tom lived at, where uh, a friend of the show, Kurt Pope, walked into a room and it was Tinky sat <laughs> on a chair uh, listening to my sacrifice on his own in the smooth jazz room as it was previous to midnight and then after midnight all kicked off and Tinky is just playing air guitar of course. while my sacrifice is on. I, I thought I thought you were going to say his crowning achievement was karaoke in Porto on his stag when oh, Tinky did yes. a wonderful rendition of that song in a little karaoke bar. And the locals looked very confused. Yeah. Plenty of history with that song. Put it that way. Yeah. And you can actually sing as well, Tinky. So I'm surprised that you're reticent to uh, set your dulcet tones on the listeners' ears. Anyway, let's move on. Chris Jericho comes to the ring 
after the strange cut and bemoans the fact that he's not booked for tonight's show despite being in the main event of wrestlemania 18 a few weeks before he moans that kidman trish stratus and maven all have matches but he doesn't and he says it hurts his feelings says this is the worst day of his life but it's still better than all of the crowd he also says he's uh, better than the has-been hulk hogan uh, any thoughts on jericho's promo old man it's amazing and this is why I can understand why Jericho thinks he's so good, because this promo is brilliant. In particular, the first half of it, before he says, oh, it hurts my feelings. I get the feeling that everything he says is true and exactly how he feels. Quite understandably as well, I think. I think I'd be pissed off. It's just tremendous. He's really, really good. And I love the fact that he shits on Hogan, because that's kind of like, I don't know, that feels like something that probably shouldn't be doing. It feels a bit naughty. If I if I've been naughty listening to him say it. And also, another note on it, the outfit he's wearing is incredible. Absolutely incredible. Well done, Jericho. Well done, go. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a turn, a three sixty turn on, on your thoughts on Jericho. Uh Tom. Uh, yeah, I I wonder if Vince Man like said to him, Yeah, you're not getting on this card because you're shit. Fuck off. And then he went out there like and fired him up somehow to get there because it's a very it's a it's a promo that's very much full of piss and vinegar. It was uh, yeah, I, I thought it was quite good, and I did think to myself, I hope this leads to something, which well, I, we may or may not find out later. Well, I think that uh, it's a good promo, but I also think that if it is him kind of conveying some of his true feelings, then he should definitely wind his neck in because, quite frankly, he should be embarrassed by his performances whilst he was the undisputed champion because mm. he was terrible. His matching at Triple H in the main event of WrestleMania is just dull as hell. He had two matches in the same night against Steve Austin and The Rock. He goes on about how he's the only man to beat them both in the same night. He's also the only man to stink out the ring in the same night against The Rock and Steve Austin because both of the matches against those two, uh, the the night he wins the Undisputed Championship, are not good. So, yeah, he's only got himself to blame as far as I'm concerned. Oh, yes. Wow. I don't think I've ever seen that, that those matches. And based on what you've just said, I, I don't think I will. To be honest, I kind of block that, block those from my memory because they are awful. I don't, know how, I don't know how he manages it. Because at that point in time, I could have had a good match with both of those guys. And yet, Chris Jericho can't do it. Chris Jericho. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we maybe one day we'll cover the show. Um, I, I may veer us away from it because, as you can tell, I'm not the biggest fan. But who knows? Maybe one day. Perhaps we could uh, we could get together when we're allowed and get good and beard up and do a watch-along episode. Live. Uncut. Uncensored. No, let's not do that. Um, Naked! (laughs) Next up, we have The Undertaker confronting Ric Flair backstage in his office without saying anything. It's a bit of a strange moment, this, where basically The Undertaker just looks like he's trying to uh, intimidate Flair, who is going to be the referee, as we heard earlier on, from Vince McMahon for his match, The Undertaker's match with Steve Austin. Um, Also, the the only thing that's intimidating in that room is Arn Anderson's shirt. My note for this section, Undertaker and Flair with Anderson, point of doom, that's it. Because that's all it is, it's just like, hey, hey. So I kind of like... Hey, oh man, you, you were pointing then. Yeah. The listeners aren't going to be able to get that point, get that. Well, well that's their weakness. <laughs> if, they, if they cared, they'd be in on the call. <laughs> Next up, we have a match for the Intercontinental Championship. It's um, Rob Van Damme defending his title against Eddie Guerrero. This one lasts for 11 and a half minutes and ends when 
Eddie Guerrero brings the Intercontinental title belt into the ring. And as RVD snatches it from him, Tim White gets hit with it. Guerrero then manages to hit a neckbreaker due to the kind of distraction of RVD hitting Tim White and then hits a frog splash for the victory to win the Intercontinental title belt. Tom, thoughts on the match? Uh, first things first, Nick, I think you mispronounced that it's Roy Van Damme. <laughs> so that's uh that's that that was all i'd say <laughs> <laughs> what were your thoughts on the match uh thoughts of the match it was it was a fun match you don't see many neck breakers these days i was thinking about this i thought about so i think about moves i may have had this conversation with you lads before but moves that just aren't in vogue anymore like a neck breaker or um a atomic drop and at this point i spent hours trawling through the incredible Twitter account that I'd recommend everybody follow is Rick Rude selling atomic drops, which is <laughs> a great way to spend some time. That's the second time in two weeks you've plugged that Twitter account. <laughs> I love it. It is the funniest <laughs> thing. It is the funniest Twitter account you will ever watch. Um, and a, uh, a side Russian leg sweep. There are three moves I thought mm. you did too much often these days. And I well, the side why... Russian leg sweep has been perfected by Bret Hart, so why would anyone try and do it again? Well, you've got to have something to aim towards, haven't you? But uh, in terms of this match, so I, I haven't got much to say about the match because it was, it, was, it was quite a good match. I did enjoy it. What I did start thinking about, though, was the legacy of old uh, Edward Guerrero. And there's no denying that Eddie Guerrero was very good. Very good wrestler. But that's kind of it, really. Like, he, he was very, very good. And I might get a bit of heat for this, but his, his legacy is, is because he's dead, isn't it? Like he's his legacy's been somewhat rewritten as being one of the best wrestlers of all time. He was very good, very very good. But I don't. He's the kind of WWE have turned him into this almost godlike figure, I believe, uh, with the way they revere Eddie Guerrero, which I don't think is necessarily as warranted as it as it actually is. I'm intrigued to get your boys' thoughts on that. It's an interesting one because. I there is a WWE untold on the WWE network on um, Eddie Guerrero and his time on SmackDown. And he's basically they to Tom's point, they basically say that he was SmackDown in effect. Like he when he went SmackDown, like it was the during the time that they were Heyman was running it and they were trying to be better than Raw because they'd effectively been told that they were kind of secondary in there. So all that stuff. And they say in this like oh and he was like he proved that like you could be a small guy and you could win the title and i just immediately in my head i was like bright heart and i'd never thought it before and then i was like Shawn michaels and then i was like those guys did this before i think grow is a funny one because i watch his stuff now and i can see why he is revered and i can see why he's revered by wrestlers because he is as tommy said he's tremendous in the ring he's great like his stuff looks real as we touched upon in WrestleMania 19, it's very intense. He works a very intense, realistic style. I I don't know. I don't know whether he is overrated. He got into the position that he did through his talent, I think. And he, I believe, if he hadn't passed away, he probably would have stayed at a top level for a long time. I I also just have to quantify what I said as well. In that I wasn't watching it when he mm. was in his run at the top of the company either. So I just need to I need to add that that context into it as well. 
I mean, I don't think what Tom's saying is necessarily overrated, more that WWE kind of almost put him on a pedestal higher than he necessarily ever got mm. in WWE, which I think is right in some respects, because he was a headlining act towards the end of his career. But he was also someone who shuffled back and forth between headlining and upper mid card quite a lot. He was obviously very popular backstage. And I think that's partly why at the time it hit everyone so hard and I also think you're right, old man. Had he carried on, he probably would have been a multiple-time WWE champion. He probably would have wrestled for another five, ten years after the point when he did die. Um, and who knows what we would be saying about him and the matches that he would have had and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of like the classic case of someone who you can only imagine what they might have done in comparison to someone who has done it. It's For me, it's the classic kind of difference between if you take a football analogy for example imagining uh someone like paul gascoigne against wayne rooney like the idea that like gascoigne never really did everything he could have done because of all the personal problems he had wayne rooney did do everything he could have possibly done and it seems underwhelming because his ceiling seemed so high but then you have to think about the fact that he's the top scorer of man united's history the top scorer of england's history he's won the premier league however many times the fa cup champions league literally everything he could have won except for international honors and you go that's not at all a bad career in fact that's a phenomenal career to have done what he's done it's the same thing in wrestling sometimes you look back at someone like eddie guerrero who you can only imagine what he might have accomplished and you compare it to someone like i don't know triple h who has accomplished lots and lots of things. Maybe that's not a great example, but anybody basically who's seen out their entire career. Edge, I think, is a good example, actually. Someone like Edge, where he's been a multiple-time world champion, headlined WrestleManias, goodness knows what else, come back, and, and is now wrestling again. And so it, it feels like Eddie Guerrero is a better or accomplished or could have accomplished more than Edge, but you'll never know. And it's because it's only your imagination that's working. It's not actually having seen it play out. So it's difficult. It's very, very difficult to comment. It's tough as well. Like, we said this uh for wrestling in 19 as well like he's big he's big here and like the um the wwe untold that i alluded to he it seems like he got clean in terms of drinking drugs apparently and then started putting what i think it would be safe for me to assume other drugs in his body that got him the size that he is and it's just really sad isn't it yeah, I mean, he was released for uh, drunk driving. So he was in a bad way yeah. in terms of um, in 2001. This was from WWE. He got, he got released and he returned to WWE in April of this year. So literally a few months before, well, in fact, a few weeks before this match took place, he returned. And yeah, I don't know. It, there's obviously all kinds of stuff that you could say about what Guerrero did and didn't do. And, you know, maybe WWE should have picked up on some of those things and obviously had done at one point. So who knows what was going on? Um, but ultimately, yeah, it's, it's just difficult because you just you don't know what he could have done. And you don't know. Maybe here's the other thing. Like if he would carried on wrestling beyond his peak years, would that have sullied mm. that reputation mm. further? Who knows? Like, it's really, it's just really hard. And it you know that he would have as well. He yes. probably would have done. You know what I mean? He would, we would lose people like, like a flair who wrestled far too long because he loved it so much. In terms of this match, I was a bit disappointed by it, to be honest. I thought that I was expecting something from them and they didn't, didn't really get it. I think their styles don't really mesh very well. I think they've got quite different, and similar at the same yeah. time styles. Like, <laughs> like how, how else to say it? Um, like they just don't really. It just didn't really work. It wasn't a particularly good match. 
Uh, and also, this was the point where I was getting a little bit like, and it happens again later on in the show. How many times are we going to go to the ring announcer's table or the timekeeper's area and retrieve something from that area and bring it into the match, but then not use it and fail to use it and someone else uses it instead? That was becoming a bit repetitive during the show. So, yeah, a bit of a disappointment. Not a bad match at all, um, but just not what I was hoping for from these two. Do you think they're lackluster performances were due to the fact they were fight- fighting over that awful Intercontinental title? To quote a character from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Captain Holt, that is a cummerbund they're fighting over, <laughs> isn't it? It's not a belt, it's a cummerbund. <laughs> and it's horrible. Yeah, it's not the it's not the nicest looking of title belt. So maybe that's it. Maybe they took one look at it and was like, oh, I'm not gonna not gonna work hard for this one. <laughs> <laughs> it is a funny match because I think like you two have kind of alluded to it. When I realised what was going on, I was like, hello, we're in for an absolute treat here. And yeah, they just kind of I think because they don't mesh very well, it kind of feels like they're just going through the motions. And I was just a bit like, Oh, this seems like a bit of a waste. But fighting over a cummerbund, why bother? Yeah. And this is uh, obviously Hall of Famer Roy Van Dam as well, no? Yes. Yeah. Indeed. The other thing about this match, which I found difficult, and I think it was one of the reasons why I slowly started to fall out of love with the WWE at this point in time, was that this was where you kind of start to feel like the main event is getting, for want of a better term, bunged up with guys that you felt like we're supposed to move on to the next level by this point. So you've got Kurt Angle and Edge and Jeff Hardy and Rob Van Dam and Eddie Guerrero and even Chris Jericho cutting his promo, you know, where he's not even on the show, um, filling up these mid-card spots and you're like, hang on, who have they got? Oh, they've got Undertaker, Austin, Hogan and Triple H, who we've seen countless times in countless situations against one another. Um, in particular, Hogan's return, obviously, is a major problem here. But also the Undertaker and Austin are fighting each other on this show for the four billionth time. Mm. Um, and you're just like, this is a point where the, it was getting stale because these guys should have probably either moved on to the main event by now or maybe moved along. I know that maybe sounds dramatic for someone, for the guys, all of these guys who would go on to be future champions, but it just felt like they were delayed in getting to somewhere. Rob Van Damme in particular, towards the, in the second half of 20, 2001, one of the most popular and over stars in the, in the business and should have been pushed to the moon, probably in place of Jericho, quite frankly, in the in the in the main event spot. But they definitely refused to give it to him. And and regardless of his deficiencies in the ring, because there were talks about him being sloppy and goodness knows what else, you've got to capitalize on when these guys are super hot. And Rob Van Dam was at the end of two thousand one. And here he's still popular, but he's he's on the way. He's on the way back down again. R V D is just what he got away, isn't he, I think, like in terms of being a main eventer. And the problem he's got is that he's, like we said when we talked about Living Dangerously, he's terrible on the mic, like terrible in particular in WWE. And for some reason, they never put him with anyone. They never put him with a talker. Don't understand. I never really understood it at the time because it just seems like such a waste. Well, he also of, he also wasted it himself, didn't he? Because he was on yeah. the brink of a major push in 2006 and then... And then at his, uh, I think, he, I think, and I, and this may be wrong, but I think he had like some kind of arrest for yeah, drug possession. Drugs. And then yeah. and, and basically it just usurped his whole big push, which was basically mm-hmm. coming his way on the back of ECW One Night Stand 2006. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a funny one. Paul Heyman makes so much sense to pair with, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> so after this match, Jim, Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler discussed the success of the Scorpion King. Jim Ross has said he watched it the other night and is going to watch it again at the weekend. I bet he fucking didn't. I bet. He, I bet. He, I'd be surprised if he even watched it the first time, let alone going to watch it again. Have you then seen we, that fucking film, Tinky? 
I've not seen it. No, it's not. It's not The Rock's best. I, I'm. I don't imagine it is. I have no interest in watching it. I don't. I was never a fan of the Mummy films in general. To be honest, it wasn't for me. Oh really? I really like the first two. No, it's just I, there's something about there's a. It's the same way I feel about Pirates of the Caribbean. Just I just don't care. Like it just don't swashbuckling or ancient remains things. They're just there. I'm not interested <laughs> at all. What about Indiana Jones? No, never liked Indiana Jones. No. Never liked it. Never watched it. Oh. Never been a fan of it. Those two things, those Hang two on. types of Hang films, just don't interest me. What about Hook? Uh, I, Hook, I only like because I watched it when I was really young. I don't think it's actually a good film, if I'm honest. <laughs> um, but I do like it from the perspective of I watched it when I was seven. And so I still like watching it now. But It's like a massive oh. performance with Bob Hoskins in it. <laughs> He's magnificent as Mr. Smeet. What a guy. I thought Tommy was going to... When you said Hook wasn't a good film, I thought, uh-oh, he's fucking poking the bear with a shitty stick. I think if we, if I was watching it for the first time now, I'd be like, that was a bit rubbish. But I, who knows? I mean, I don't know, because I'm not watching it for the first time now. I'm watching I'm watching it for the 400th time. So it's difficult for me to say. Have you ever seen that meme of, um, it's Dustin Hoffman, isn't it, who plays, um, Hook. Who plays him? Yeah, Hook without his wig on looks like Ric Flair now. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> That's true. That's actually true. So then we get the build-up video for the Undertaker versus Steve Austin. It's a number one contenders match with Ric Flair as the special referee. Um, I've got a whole page of notes here, and I'm trying to find the end of the match note because, God, this one goes on for a long time. 27 minutes this match lasts. And we get another case of someone going out to the timekeeper area or the ring announcers area and getting a steel chair. It's Taker this time who gets it. He is unarmed by Flair, but and then Austin hits a low blow. Taker hits the big boot and gets a two count. Apologies for this long drawn out explanation of the end, but th- that's just the way it goes in this one. Taker pushes Austin into Flair when reversing a stunner, which puts Flair down for way longer than he should go down. I understand when the referees go down for a long time. Mm-hmm but Flair shouldn't. Taker then hits Austin with the chair, but Austin kicks out of a subsequent count after Flair has recovered. Taker then misses with a chair. Uh, Steve Austin then stomps another mud hole into Undertaker because he'd done one previously. Um, Austin gets the chair. Taker boots the chair into Austin's head, makes the cover, but Austin puts his foot on the rope. Flair doesn't see it and makes the count. Who wants to unravel that? (laughs) I'll go. Cool. The crowd have my undying respect. Because I genuinely, I think if I was there during this match, I may have left. It is awful. It is 27 minutes. Felt like a fortnight. (laughs) I I thought, fucking hell, it it must be almost record day. Like, fuck. Oh, my God. It started, what's very frustrating. There's a lot of frustration when I was watching this match. Like uh, Tinky said earlier, we've seen this match a million times and they start off and they're kind of having a bit of fun it seems like they do the test of strength and now Austin pulls away gives him the old middle finger Undertaker sells it like he's I don't know just had his car nicked or something and they're having fun (laughs) it's reasonably paced like you know they're not just gonna have a throwaway 10 minute match so you're kind of like you're settling in for the long haul not quite as long as I thought it was and then it just slows down and then it just doesn't pick up again and the main thing for me was old Kane Park and Scott Hall walk down to the ring. And I'll tell you what, they do some great standing. <laughs> yeah. But that's all they bloody do. They don't do anything else. The crowd somehow stick with it. Like, I don't know how they've got the enthusiasm for anything, to be honest. Like, 
by the end of this match. But I also realised that what they were actually probably doing in having a longer, slower paced match is they're kind of bringing the crowd down. I think they're kind of and the audience at home. They're kind of like, well, we've had some fast paced stuff. You need to fucking settle in because we all know, like as, as we've said, the main event isn't going to be fast paced and it's not gonna it's not gonna be a bum twitcher. It's just gonna. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Old man's run out of energy to talk about. I I was so so dramatic. I was so sad watching this match (laughs) because it is it's two of my favourite performers ever. Flair is kind of is what is. Then you get Scott Hall and X Park turn up, so you think there's going to be a schmoz. The finish is done terribly because Ric Flair sees Austin's leg. Like it's, yeah, he uh, looks for it, doesn't he? Oh, it's, 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 yeah, one, two. awful. <laughs> like you've got, what was it? I've put on here. My note is you've got three all-time greats in there, and they managed to fuck it up that badly. And Flair Scarpa straight to the back, and even imagine the bollocking he got when he got back because it's fucking awful. I'm so disappointed with these lads. I'm disappointed. Austin, you're all right. But Taker and Flair need to take a long look in the mirror. Tom, what are your thoughts? Um, I yeah, it's so boring. My my highlight of the match. There's a couple of couple of little highlights actually, but this goes to show you the quality of the match because they're not actually really in relation to the match. More where my mind went during it. <laughs> um, Rick Flair's little red boots, quite nice touch. And it, I did uh, to educate old man on this actually because obviously he referenced an older referee. He was known as Red Shoes. But there's one in New Japan, isn't there, Tinky? There is, yeah. Little lad wearing red shoes, which is quite nice. Maybe think of that. Um, when Scott Hall and Kevin Ash come down, Scott Hall Friday, next back. Yep, and him, he was there. Um, <laughs> when Hall and Oates come down to the ring, <laughs> um, Scott Scott Hall has got what's what's happened is it's Friday afternoon. You've just finished work. You've gone down to the pub. You've had a couple of beers with your mates. You got a bit excited, and then you've just got a phone call saying you do know we've got an appointment with a solicitor now. <laughs> and that is what Scott Hall said. He'd forgotten that he has to come back out and stand on the ramp for a little bit during the main event. So he sunk a couple of beers after his match and been like, this is lovely, I'm ready to get a little buzz on, and then got the call. And he got the look of, in his face of like, I'm fucking smashed and I should not be out here about him. I think that's probably why they didn't do anything. Maybe, maybe. The uh, match itself is very boring. It's very long. It's just shit. I mean, I cannot believe what I'm about to say. Ric Flair needs to take a page out of Scott Armstrong's book. Because <laughs> it's the most abhorrent refer- refereeing performance I've ever seen. And I think, to be fair, there's there's an element of them, obviously, with the finish, that they're supposed to have something like that. The fact that there's a, you know, his, his inability, is it lack of experience being a referee? that uh, they do that, but it's just not really presented that way. I had to go searching for that reasoning. I don't like, I'm not a big fan of this era, Austin, a slightly more bit dafter. Do you know what I mean? Like this is post the turn at WrestleMania 17, isn't it? And obviously, and there's the, he's done like the comedy bits with angle, which were great at the time, but I hate the what so much. And that is something actually that we didn't really touch on, but Jericho deals with incredibly well in his promo. Cause he starts off leaving a gap and then he doesn't let them stop. But that's all dials back into this era of Austin that I just don't don't really like that much either. And I get the idea that The Undertaker's a proper prick. 
at this stage in his WWE career. Whether or not he's just playing the character really well, but I don't like the Dead Man Inc. incarnation of The Undertaker either. So all in all, a big bowl of shit soup. Yeah, I mean, I can't really disagree with very much you said. To give these two 27 minutes, when we've seen them wrestle time and time and time again during this period, like from about SummerSlam 98 through to this point, they must have had about 15 pay-per-view matches against one another i mean we don't need to see 27 minutes of them they even tried to they obviously put rick flair in a special referee to kind of give it another twist but we we've seen them with special guest referees we've seen them with all kinds of twists on this match we do not need we don't just just simply don't need to see the match again but as i say to give them 27 minutes when you already don't need to see the match is just pathetic and also it's a time when the undertaker was a is kind of i think laziest i think towards the end of this year he starts to pick up again uh, i think having maybe been told look things and you're not doing that you're not doing that great at the moment um but yeah at this point he just wasn't in a good space austin was obviously we everyone knows was just fed up at this point wanted out and did basically walk out about a month later after this and he, you can tell that he's just not happy with his booking he's not happy with what he has to do the the one positive i thought in the in terms of this match was austin playing to the crowd and to like and, and trash talking with the undertaker at the beginning i thought that was a really good way rather than going straight into the austin brawl which was the the usual way he would go into his matches he kind of slowed it down and tried to make it a bit more kind of I don't know, like trying to tell a story a little bit with him trying to piss the Undertaker off and stuff, which I thought was was quite good. But everything other than that was just not good at all, just really bad. And regardless of whether they were trying to calm down the crowd at this point or not, I just think it's just not it's not well paced. It's not well timed. There's nothing about it. It just doesn't make sense. And then also you get, as you said, x back and Scott Hall coming out. They just stand there and watch for about 10 minutes. Why? No one knows. Doesn't make any sense. I, to be honest, Tom, your explanation that perhaps he was a bit pissed makes complete sense because otherwise it yeah. makes no sense that they were there. Like it does make sense that maybe they were supposed to do something and then they were like, let's call an audible. Let's not let's not have him do anything because he's he's been drinking or something. Yeah, just just really poor, really really poor. Bad match, long, boring. What it felt like when I was watching it, I get like I don't know what they were thinking because like you said, Tingy. It's so poorly put together as well. Like, it's not like you've got two guys that at various points in their career could have a match with anyone and get the crowd invested. And the crowd, again, a big nod of respect because they stick with it because they don't get anything. There's no up and down. There's like a couple of false finishes that they pop for. But it's very lazy. I'm going to say this. If if someone was in complete control and didn't have to deal with any egos or anything, they would be saying to the Undertaker and Steve Austin, OK, go out there and do 15 minutes and have a decent match and get this done. I think either someone fucks up. So either it is that thing you talked about with Scott Hall and this and that slows everything down or the Undertaker and Austin are saying, now we, we're going to have an epic. We, we have had so many matches before. We've got to have some kind of major bluff. There's got to be some reason why this match comes after all those other matches. And so they turned around and said, we're, we're going to have a really long one. But someone's someone other than someone in control has turned around and said, we're making this 27 minutes long mm-hmm. because you just wouldn't do it. It just doesn't make sense to make this a good show, to have these go 27 minutes whilst you've given, you know, the women four, four and a half um, or, you know, something else uh, less time what's strange as well is that 
So it's the number one contender match. You know that whoever wins this is going to almost definitely have to face Hogan. This was another thing for me when I'm watching it. Is like, I think obviously the benefit of hindsight because I've had the misfortune of seeing the Undertaker in the Hogan match at the pay-per-view. That's oh, atrocious. And I can't get any excitement when I'm watching it thinking, even taking my, like, trying to forget what I know. I don't really want to watch this era Austin fight Hogan. And I don't want to see this era Undertaker fight Hogan. Mainly because I don't want to see Hogan fight, to be honest, at this stage in his career. Well, you, even if you were mildly interested in seeing Hogan against either one of these two, having watched this match, you would no longer be <laughs> interested yeah. in seeing them against Hogan. After the match, Coach tries to ask Flair about Austin's foot being on the rope when Flair gets backstage. Uh, he shows Flair a replay of what happened on the man- monitor, and Flair simply says, oh shit. Yes, which is the best and most real thing of the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. The match that comes that's sandwiched between Undertaker and Austin and Triple H and Hulk Hogan is a match for the tag team titles as Billy and Chuck face Al Snow and Maven in a six minute contest. And effectively, the end comes when um, after Maven hits a big flying crossbody for a near fall on uh, Billy Gunn. Rico gets in the ring. Al Snow then chases him off, which causes a distraction and allows Chuck to hit a super kick on Maven and Billy to get the pin. Uh, Tom, thoughts on this one? Does anything say 2002 WWE quite like Maven and Al Snow versus Billy and Chuck with Rico (laughs) on the the side? What a bag of shit this is. But again, thankfully a short highlight of it. All I've got to say about the match I love the fact that Rico is dressed like a lime-flavoured lime Starburst. Yes. <laughs> he is indeed. Oh, man. I've got a couple of things. So, Maven trivia. So, Maven's his actual first name, which is great. Okay, this is my baby Maven, which is good. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he was, up until September 2019, working as an account executive for the Brooklyn Nets, the basketball really? team that... that Tom at the real Tom Smith supports. So lovely old job. Um, I always knew I liked Maven. Maven yeah. Clint Huffman. Yeah. Clint with a K. Yeah, they bloody know. Um, a fine toilet break of a match, but the main thing that we'll take a little dive into is Billy and Chuck. And the um, what can only be described as reasonably aggressive homophobia that I think that whole thing just brought on to wwe it's just weird it may like obviously times in particular the last few years have moved on a lot in terms of how people seem to be treated in the media but it never sat well with me the old the whole billy and chuck thing i think mainly because one i don't really want to see billy gunn and chuck palumbo in a tag team anyway i can't really get a lot of excitement for that but when you dress them up as like these fake homosexuals with Rico, who, again, is meant to be, what is he? He's like a fashion consultant or something for them. And it's, it's just horrible. It just makes makes homosexuality a laughing stock, doesn't it? And it's cheap to, like, kind of get the crowd. And then they kind of top it all off by making them hills as well. And it's like, what's going on? What's going on? And also, who wants to see Al Snow in this shape? Like, he is like a potato. <laughs> Al Potato. Like he's just he's obviously not in great shape because I think he's probably only training 
at this point. And obviously, he's a trainer on Tough Enough. He's like a little road time lad. And Maven, I can see why he didn't make it, because he hasn't been taking Hogan's vitamins, because he is tiny compared to the other lads in this match, even though he's in great shape. Yeah, I think that is key, is that this is the years building up to the Guerrero and Benoit tragedies. And I think it's clear that there's a whole lot of juice going on in general. Um, and and you can see from Maven that probably he's not <laughs> not indulging and uh, therefore looks physically a lot smaller than everyone else around him. The interesting, funny you talk about Juice actually. I noticed in the angle match that he's got a lot of the old back acne going on. Uh, what could you be accusing him of, uh, Thomas? Not having a good dermatologist. <laughs> fair, enough. Fair, fair enough um you know on the billy and chuck stuff so i think there it was it was strange because they obviously culminated this whole thing with the marriage of billy and chuck um that they kind of pulled out of at the last minute billy and chuck did by saying that someone put them up to it for the to get the publicity and up to that point yeah they portrayed them as heels but they were winning matches and they were they were the champions. And there was a little bit, I seem to remember, of publicity from kind of certain parts of the press that were kind of like interested in where WWE were going to go with this. Like, were they going to deliver on something that would actually have two two men portrayed as homosexuals on their program and and have them be successful? But they undid it with all the marriage stuff and it got them a lot of negative publicity, which was a shame because prior to that, they, they, it, it looked like they might be doing something that as ham fisted as WWR with it was at least a step in the right direction. Well, yeah, cause they actually had quite a lot of support, didn't they? From the LGBTQ, yeah. although it wouldn't have been called that at the time community where they were actually being like, Do you know, what? this could actually be quite a positive thing. And then, yeah, they just bottled it and angered at everyone. I think that's the other thing, isn't it? Is like, I think, well, obviously watching this with the benefit of hindsight, I can remember not in, not particularly enjoying it at the time because I didn't. Um, I took it more as a mocking thing. It's very interesting to hear. I didn't know that they'd got a lot of good publicity and a lot of support as well. So that kind of take back what I say. So it was actually working. They obviously, like we said, the uh, they just fucked it up at the end by bottling it. I guess the thing is, is that if you compare it to the portrayal of Goldust, who was never, in fairness, fairness portrayed as being gay, but still kind of they suggested that he was and they suggested Mm. that he was a kind of predatory kind of character as well if you compare it to that that was not what they were doing with billy and chuck they weren't they weren't suggesting that they were predatory in any way they were just suggesting that they potentially were in a relationship together and they they never explicitly said that they were either they just kind of hinted that they were so it was it was different as i said it wasn't perfect their portrayal was definitely not perfect in any way but it was just a progression it was a better way of portraying it than they had done in the past which was why people were maybe a little bit hopeful that this was something new that wwe were going to do one final billy and chuck note from me anyway their music is tremendous yes that was gonna be my yeah yeah you are so good to me I think it's great. I think that's a great theme. Yeah. I think that's a really good one. Okay, let's move on to the main event. And we first of all get the hype. We have to. We do indeed. (laughs) We get the hype video for Triple H and Hulk Hogan, which is very, very similar. In fact, it may even be exactly the same as the video you get at the start of the pay-per-view, which is hyping up the show. Um, And it's for the Undisputed WWE Championship, which Triple H had won in the main event of WrestleMania 18 about a month before. It goes 20 minutes. And in the end... There is a whole heap of stuff I have to go through here. So once again, apologies, settle in. I'll try and make this as short as I possibly can. So 
Hogan hits a big boot and a leg drop. Jericho comes down and Earl Hebner is distracted as a consequence of Jericho coming down and so doesn't make the count for Hogan to win the match. Jericho then knocks Earl Hebner down. Jericho hits Hogan with a steel chair. Triple H then takes out Chris Jericho. Um, Triple H goes after Hogan, but Hogan then hulks up. Hogan hits the leg drop, but Triple H kicks out. Triple H H then hits a pedigree, but The Undertaker comes out and hits Hebner with a punch to stop him once again counting the fall. Uh, Undertaker then hits Triple H with a chair, but then Hogan clears Taker out of the ring, hits the leg drop and gets the pin. Afterwards, Triple H confronts Hogan uh, whilst he's bleeding and uh, shaking, but then extends his hand and Hogan reciprocates and they shake each other's hands. Uh, Who wants to go first? I'm, I'm letting this go out to the out to the crowd who wants to speak first go on and i will so first of all great hands <laughs> the two hands on show are the best thing about this match <laughs> i genuinely i want to give uh not a respect to triple h because he works his fucking socks off in this to try and make Hogan look even passable. Um, he's got, it's, it's just impossible. They obviously capitalizing on The Rock, Hogan, at WrestleMania 18 a month before. Triple H is not The Rock. And also, if you watch the triple, uh, the uh, Hogan-Rock match, the content of the actual match is not particularly good. It's made by the fact that you're seeing these two icons, icon versus icon, as they portrayed it. And the crowd are electric, like, but not even electric, they're nuclear. They're so excited. It's lovely, enjoyable time. It's not so much. The end is weird because Jericho comes down, gets made to look stupid, effectively. So that doesn't really do him any favours. Undertaker comes down because obviously Undertaker has to be the heel for facing Hogan because Hogan ain't going heel for no one, is he? And it just wouldn't work with the crowd. So I can, I can understand why the Undertaker comes down but it's really it's just bad it's badly done it's a mess just not good it's very it's just very symptomatic of Hogan's run as the champion in that it's just not very good it's not very well done it's lazy I think they got themselves into a position where they were like right we'll have a we'll have a 5H match and then they realised oh we've actually got to have the match and we've got to then come out the other side of the match. And the minute you put the match, Hogan's got to go over. There's absolutely no chance of anything else happening. And then you've got to have Hogan in a title match. And you can't just take the belt off of Hogan like on a roll or something the following night. It's going to have to be on a pay-per-view. Not good. Too long. But better than Austin Undertaker. Quite significantly as well. Which is not a compliment. <laughs> so I, I found this match to be equally boring and bad as the as the previous match it was off to a rocky start when triple h comes down wearing the new horrible unified championship belt but the graphic has still got the old two belts on it that is the the match that is it is that that is encapsulates (laughs) it that lack of attention this is boring this boring and shit this is why triple h is not for me, will never be one of the greatest of all time because he doesn't have the ability to be able to pull that that match out of Hogan that they obviously thought he would be able to. This is around the period, isn't it, where he has long, boring matches all the time. And it's just not 
Oh, no. It's rubbish. It's rubbish. <laughs> Just rubbish. I don't want to see fucking Hulk Hogan. And, uh, which is it's so weird because I think about this whole... Like, think about this. We talked about WrestleMania 19 the other day. The match that Hogan has with Vincent Mann is significantly better than this match with Triple H. And it's only a year after. They just don't work to Hogan's strengths. Or, should I say, they don't make any attempt to hide his weaknesses mm-hmm. at this point. And that's what just makes it crap. They try and do a standard wrestling match, at which point is is evidently beyond Hogan. And that is what they do at WrestleMania 18. It's effectively a strength and popularity contest at WrestleMania 18. And it makes for a tremendous spectacle. But not at any point in the match do they in that match do they actually attempt to wrestle, really. <laughs> they just yeah. have a little bit of a scrap. And that's what this match should have been. But no, they tried to make it a Triple H style, long, drawn out wrestling match. And it just doesn't work. And it's boring and shit. Yeah, I think it's another case of egos getting in the way, and probably Triple H's ego in this case, which is, oh, I, I can take him to 20, 20, I actually yeah. made a mistake earlier on, it's 22 minutes, mm. I can take him to a 22 minute match, Um, I can I can get out of him, and you can't, because he's not been great for a very long time by this point, and you're right, they did everything they could at WrestleMania 18 to make the match as one dimensional as they could, and rely on the excitement, and the drama that the crowd would bring to it, here, they have a chance early on to do exactly the same thing, Triple H and Hulk Hogan, they start the match in a collar and elbow tie up, and you're like, okay, do the same thing you did at WrestleMania. Triple H wins the first couple. Hogan wins the next one. The fans can get excited. And they seem like they're going to go in that direction. And then after about two minutes, right now we're going to settle into a Triple H main event star match. And Hulk Hogan's not capable of that. Um, he, I, I'd argue he probably wasn't ever capable of that. But he's certainly not capable of it by this point in his career. It's overly long. So again, if you're going to have The Undertaker and Austin go 27 minutes long, it makes sense if your main event's going to be 12 minutes long. That would make sense to me. I'd be like, okay, fair enough. You're trying to give one of the big matches loads and loads of time so the fans feel like they've got their money's worth because you're going to deliver a short, sharp main event where basically you cut everything down to its its absolute best it can be and give Hogan and Triple H a chance to have a match that's decent. No, this is just massively long, 22 minutes. So deathly boring in the middle. I actually preferred the Undertaker Austin match to this, even though it was a further five minutes in length. And that is not saying anything because I didn't think either match was of any real value. And then there's this busy overbooked finish, which again, had they cut it down to 12 minutes in total and had this be the last four or five minutes, I've been like, well, it was a bit messy, but at least it wasn't boring. But there's just this massive 15 minute space in the middle of it all, which is so dull that, yeah, it just, it's not, it's not good. It's not good at all. I guess this was WWE kind of feeling like they had to go there after what had happened at WrestleMania 18. Like they felt like, oh, wow, Hogan's a massive star. Like this is the really the the genius in some ways. I hate to use that word in conjunction with Hogan, but the genius of Hogan is that he manages to completely convince everybody over and over again that he's a massive deal. And people will pay him money and put him in prominent spots over and over again for exactly the same reason. And that's what happened here. WWE saw what happened with The Rock saw the way Hogan manipulated the crowd and was like, wow, this guy's a massive star. We need to get him back into main events. We need to cash in on this as quick as we possibly can. Give him the belt, have him main event against Triple H in a pay-per-view, have him main against main event against The Undertaker in a pay-per-view. Um, and, and then, you know, we've really made our money's worth out of it. But unfortunately, it just means that we have this match and we have the match that comes a month later against The Undertaker. So, yeah, it's not good. It's not good. It probably might have been all right at the time, maybe. I don't know. But for me, looking back, Nearly 20 years later, it's not a good, it is not a good match at all. 
Credit again, though, to the crowd. They are yeah. They stay with mm. it all the way, right the way through the show. They just keep staying with it. And I, I just, if they hadn't been there, the last hour of this show would have been an absolute. Yeah. Well, it was a chore anyway, but it would have been a total chore. It would have been awful. Thankfully, the crowd stay in it and therefore give everything just that little nice shine. Yeah, they're the only what? thing that stop it from being absolute muck. Yeah. yeah. What's interesting as well is seeing Triple H play the Hogan role at the end with the handshake. Yeah, yeah so obviously Hogan's, Hogan's whole thing, in particular at the end of the WrestleMania match, He's holding his ribs, he's been beat down off, but he tenderly offers his hand to the rock and they take it and then they do the pose down. Hogan must pose, etc. And Triple H does that role. And that was it was the cherry on the shit cake, I think. It was just like, that's illogical because you don't need it. You just don't need it. And they're done now. Triple H and Hogan are done. I think I think Hogan's return to WWE is the bit for me that mean, meant that I stopped liking WWE as much. Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't just affect what Hogan was involved in. The whole Triple H handshake is about him doing the same thing to Hogan or trying to do the same thing to Hogan that Hogan did to The Rock, which is get all the attention back on him to give him mm. the kind of the kind of Rock. sympathy and all that kind of stuff. And it's just all these all of a sudden all the egos that existed already. So Triple H, Austin, The Rock, three of the biggest stars at the time in in the history of the business in 2001 and 2000 jockeying for position at the top of the card there can only be one top heel and there can only be one top baby face and now they're all fighting for the same spaces almost and we've already seen a little bit of the consequence of that but by and large the three of them were able to coexist and and create golden stuff and make really great matches and have and also try and put other people over on the way add hogan to the mitchell mix all of a sudden it massively puts austin's nose out of joint he gets very very annoyed doesn't want to work with hogan at all wants to stay as far away from him as he possibly can it means triple h becomes a whole lot more selfish like all of a sudden the booking of triple h goes into overdrive in terms of let's make triple h the center of everything and have him win everything so it just it ruins for me the top level of wwe for a good year after this and it was one of the reasons why i completely fell away from it because hogan really did mess things up in my opinion well, like I said, to you, I don't know if it was I don't know if it was a conscious decision as well, but after WrestleMania 18, I took a break for quite a while as mm. well until around about WrestleMania 24, about six years, probably the longest period outside of watching wrestling I think that I've ever had, and it coincided with this bit. It would have been similar for me because I would have been at university then for for three years, in Cardiff for four years. So ultimately, I didn't have access to Sky Sports and just basically didn't wasn't able to watch it so much and just did did fall away from it. So I've just fallen down a bit of a rabbit hole on Wikipedia. Oh, dangerous. so so I found out at the start that Hulk Hogan's middle name is Eugene, which oh, is which adds a little layer of everything. I then found out that he fronted a rock band in 1995 called the Wrestling Boot Band. Right. The Wrestling Boot Band, also known as the Wrestling Boot Travelling Band, was a musical group fronted by Hulk Hogan, which also included the Mouth of the South Jimmy Hart, Hogan's then wife Linda, and John J.J. Maguire. They released one album, Hulk Rules, in 1995 under the name Hulk Hogan and the Wrestling Boot Band. Do you want to know some of these characteristics of the album? So, all songs written by Terry G. Boella, Jimmy Hart, and John Maguire. Track one, Hulksters in the House. Track two, American Made, which I believe was his theme song in WCW. Track three, Hulkster's Back. Track four, Wrestling Boot Travelling Band. That's just their name. Um, Track five, Bad to the Bone, which I assume is a cover. 
Track six, and this is where it really kicks off now. I want to be a Hulkamaniac. <laughs> Track seven, Beach Patrol, evidently tying into Thunder in Paradise, his TV show. Track eight, Hulk's the One. Track nine, Hulkster in Heaven. <laughs> Track ten, Hulk Rules. Out of the ten songs, seven of them have got the name Hulk in the title. <laughs> and who says that Terry, Ho- Terry Hogan's got an ego problem? <laughs> Let's try and get away from this show by giving our summary <laughs> of the show and our rating out of 10 and our match of the night. Let's start with you, old man. Up until we get to Undertaker Austin, it's good. I was enjoying it. I was having a nice time. Then they took it all away. Why did they take it away? <laughs> Why did they take my good time away? <laughs> this isn't meant as a slight on them, the participants. But when Billy and Chuck versus Maven and Al Snow is the best thing in the last hour of a pay-per-view you're in a lot of trouble it's a weird one trying to rate this because like i say the first hour and 45 minutes is good and i enjoyed it it's having a nice time i was approaching the older uh, the spider confidently it's confident i had my my cut out from a cereal box to get underneath <laughs> the glass to get the spider i was confident that the glass was going to hold my hands were going to be steady and I could get a spider outside and release it into the wild. And then for the last hour, I realised that it wasn't a spider, but it was my nightmares. And they were getting out of the glass and they were coming for me. And they were gonna, they were gonna do stuff to me that I didn't want to happen. So I ran. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I ran for cover, and then I settled on a five out of ten. Five out of ten. Okay. And your match yeah. of the night? Uh, oh, <laughs> match of the night is Angle Edge, just <laughs> ahead of our good friends. To Jerry and Billy. Good stuff, Thomas. Um, I'm gonna use an analogy. I don't know about you boys, but you ever buy the, you know, those, you know, you get in the go to a supermarket and in a in a in a meal deal, you get a you, you can get a wrap. Yeah, good times. Two, two wraps gonna. I always, no matter what side of the packet I take the wrap <laughs> from, I always eat the best one, the one with the most delicious filling first, and I always end up with the one that's a bit insipid with less filling in second. And that was what this pay-per-view was like. A disappointing meal deal wrap. First <laughs> half, great. Second half, not so great. <laughs> so with that in mind, I'm going to give it a six. Because I did really enjoy the first hour and 45, as old man said. Um, the match I'm going for is Brock Lesnar versus Jeff Hardy. I already said it, so the cat's out of the bag. But I thought that match was brilliant. A bit of masterful booking. Great performance by all around, with the exception of Lita's poor acting on the side. I think it was a really good match. It really set the tone for the character and the run that Brock Lesnar was going to have over the next year. So there we go. Yeah, similar to you both. What yeah. analogy are you using, Tinky? Uh, no analogies from me. You've had more than Ooh, enough of those. <laughs> coward. I leave the analogies to you guys. You're so poetic with it that I'm going to leave it to you guys. Um, yeah, no, it, the first half was really good. Great opener. Really good match between Edge and Kurt Angle. Really enjoyed the Jeff Hardy, Brock Lesnar match slash angle, which put over Lesnar superbly. Um, my match tonight is Angle versus Edge because I thought that was genuinely very, very good. Although I still am not convinced by the first half of it, which even that takes the edge off of it. The end is dreadful. Two massively overlong matches between four men that nobody that nobody wants to see wrestle at this point in their career like oh, i'm sure there were people i didn't want to anyway i'm giving it a five out of ten because i tend to rate most heavily on the main event that for me makes the highest percentage of that rating and for me the main events the two biggest matches were really poor 
but there's so much promise in the early stages of the show that it does deserve um, some credit at least. So we have still got the game to come. Before we get there, one last detour, um, just to ask a favor, if you could review or rate our podcast on whatever podcasting app you use to listen to the show, we'd be very grateful. And it's something we always like to see. So the game, and it is my turn to host the game this week. We've got something a little bit epic for you. It means this is going to be ruthlessly difficult and epic. So um, good luck to you both. Because today I'm asking you to name anybody that featured in the top 100 of the 2002 PWI 500. (laughs) Bloody hell. Now, I I need to make some things clear to you because obviously we have spoken about the PWI 500 before, but I thought I'd just go over some of these things again. So first of all, the PWI 500 is a kayfabe list of the most successful wrestlers over the previous year. Also, the PWA 500 is um, published in June. So the period we're talking about here that they have considered is June 2001 to May 2002. Okay, just to make that perfectly clear. So PWA 500, top 100. um, I should also make it clear that they're not all WWE wrestlers. There are lots of wrestlers from Japan and Mexico in the top 100, um, but there are lots of WWE wrestlers. So it shouldn't be completely impossible to go some distance. Of course, there is 100 correct answers. So there is the chance of a draw. Um, we will see if that bears out. Yeah, to be honest, I think that's an inevitability. <laughs> By this point, yes. Um, so I'm going to start with Tom. You you go first. Okay, I am going to go with Triple H. Triple H is correct. He was number ten in the list. Number ten. Well, well done, Triple H. Uh, I will go Stone Bold Steve Austin. Stone Bold Steve Austin was number thirteen in the list. Unlucky for some, but not him. Uh, the Rock. The Rock is going to be there somewhere, but I can't find him right now. The Rock is there, number nine. Number nine. Uh, Curtis Angle. There's no one called Curtis Angle, but there is someone called oh. Kurt Angle on the list. Oh, yes. He, in 2001, was number one on the list, but in 2002, Ooh. only made number six. Oh, it's disappointing. Um, I am going to go for... Um, my God, why can I not think of any wrestlers? What's happened to me? Oh, You're just thinking about a bunch of them. Yeah, I know. There's loads of them. Um, I'm going to go for um, the, the Edge. Edge. Let's see if he's on the list, shall we? I'm, uh, I'm pulling for you, Tom, because I can't find him straight away. He's there. Number seven is the Edge. Number seven is Edge. The Edge. From the Edge. Too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, the American Badass. The Undertaker. Yes, indeed. Number two on 2002's list. That's a shit um, position. I'm going to go for Kane. Number 55, Kane was. I see. Yeah. Uh, Roy Van Dam. Roy Van Dam. <laughs> in 2001, he had been 59th on the list. In 2002, number one. Roy Van Dam. Oh, Roy. What up, Royston? Yeah, good lad. Um, I am going to go with Jeff Harvey. Hardy. <laughs> He's making that joke, doesn't he? 32 on the list. Christian. Christian! <laughs> do, 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 do. Christian was number 47. Well done, Christian. Yeah, with that face. <laughs> um, this is 2002. I am going to go for... Try to delay any more. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to go for... Um, here we go, mate. Fuck it. I'm going. I'm going there. Oh, I'm going. I'm going off east. 
I'm going, you said lots of Japanese wrestlers are on there, didn't you? Oh, no. <laughs> Jushin Thunder Liger. Ooh. Jushin Thunder Liger, number 41 on the list. Get in. Uh, given we can go for Japanese wrestlers and my extensive Japanese knowledge, Matt Hardy. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Number 25, so higher than his brother. Ooh. I am going to go with Eddie Guerrero. Eddie oh no, 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 you've said it's it fine. now. He's in there, it's fine. Oh god, I'm gonna uh, He's number five, in fact, on the list. I was thinking, because they must have taken into account his indie stuff. They take into account everything, so yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. I will go Tajiri. Let's see. Um, Yoshihiro Tajiri, number 23. So higher than Matt and Jeff Hardy. Tajiri, 23. From now on, bingo callers across the land. <laughs> We say two and three, Joshua here to Jerry. <laughs> um, so I we don't like to bring him up, but I'm struggling at the moment. I'm gonna go with Chris Benoit. I got a feeling. Yeah, you've lost you've lost it, Thomas. Oh uh, really? Not on the list. Don't forget he injured himself in about June or May of two thousand and one and had been out of action for most of the year. So it does not appear on the list, I'm afraid. Do you know what? So... I'm gonna take the moral victory with Jushin Liger. Yeah. <laughs> You can take the moral victory you want. You've lost. Oh, yeah. I've four more in the bank. Good. I had Booker T. On this, uh, let's just check you up. Booker T, yes, 14. Uh, Bradshaw. Look, I'm not sure about him. Yes, four, 36. Uh, X-Puck. Mm, let's have a look at that one. Yes, 80. Well done. And Jericho. Jericho, yes, number four. See, he is the best. See, I was, there was one person that I was also tempted to chuck in at that point. But I don't know where I would have stood there. So let's see if he's in there. Bubba Ray. Bubba Ray Dudley is number 30. Yeah, that's annoying. Here's the list. I'll chuck in just the names that you will potentially know. I'll, I'll leave a lot of them out. So Nick Dinsmore was number 100. Just before, obviously, he was in WWE, but his indie staff got him in there. Then we have Harker Holly at 99. Dealer Brown. Um, number 95 was Just Incredible. Number 93 was Stephen Richards. Number 92 was Doug Williams. Number 90, 89 was American Dragon, Daniel Bryan, before he was way before he was in WWE. 85, Spike Dudley. Then we've got 82, Farouk. 80, 78 is Tommy Dreamer. Muck list. 76 was Low Key. 74, Val Venus. Yes! <laughs> did the same, though, did you, old man? So good. Shut up. I think he is. We have 65, Ken Shamrock. 64, Gold Dust. 62, Raven. 59, Scott Hall. 58, Rey Mysterio. Uh, 57, Christopher Daniels. 56, Lance Storm. Then we have Vader at 54. Billy Kidman. Uh, the Big Show at 49. Oh. John Cena at 46. Just turned up in WWE by the mm. start of this poll. Jerry Lynn, 45. 43 was The Bum Billy Gun. <laughs> 40 was Test. 39, Rikishi. 37 was old Chuck from Billy and Chuck. 34, Ric Flair. 33, Randy Orton. 28, Deacon Batista. (laughs) 26 is Hurricane Helms. 24, Jeff Jarrett. Your boy. (laughs) 20 is William Regal. 19, we've just spoken about him, Hulk Hogan. Oh, Hogan. 17, Brock Lesnar. I'm assuming they're taking into account their time in the development territories here because yeah. we've got a lot of the guys here yeah. that only just debuted in WWE. 15 is Genichiro Tenru, which we've seen a couple of times on uh, previous oh, yeah, pay-per-views. Yeah. Um, we've got... Uh, well, I can never remember that I've seen him. 
Yeah. So the top 10, Triple H and The Rock are, are 10 and 9. 8 is Yuji Nagata. 7 is Edge. 6 is Kurt Angle. 5, Eddie Guerrero. 4, Chris Jericho. 3 is KJ Muto, or The Great Muta, as we saw uh, last week on Spring Stampede. 2 is The Undertaker. And number 1, Rob Van Dam. Yes. A win. Good stuff, old man. So I will give you the updated uh, scores now. For we, Yeah, because we're at the point where we've each now hosted five times um and the current scores see uh old man on three ahead of tom with two and myself on ten just let that set in for a minute <laughs> you're gonna win you're the draft you're the number one draft pick mate it's it's gonna be tough god old man we need to we need to we need to start having meetings about this <laughs> yeah yeah well that just about concludes all of our business for today uh, old man thank you for joining me on this odyssey through backlash 2002 uh, thank you very much for having me. I will add just another analogy for you guys that, uh, that I meant to add in my summary of the show. Backlash 2002, the way the last hour grinds to a halt, more like Whiplash 2002. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. Maybe you're having a good time. And if you forget everything else, just remember, Ken Patera. And, and Thomas, uh, great to have you on with us as always. Thank you, mate. It was a pleasure. Do you know what I thought? When I uh, watched the uh, main event of this pay-per-view, I spat out my absinthe <laughs> and I yelled, this is shit. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you to you, the, the listeners. Uh, we always uh, appreciate your being with us for these shows. And especially when you get this far through all of Old Man's analogies, it's very, very impressive indeed. We'll be back again next yeah. week. But until then, take care.